Welcome to the Ripe Global Podcast, a podcast providing innovative and inspirational dental education to dental professionals and their teams worldwide. Each fortnight, we deliver relevant content covering procedures, educational opportunities, and interviews with rock stars from the dental world. As we explore successes and failures of dentistry, learn practical tips and expert advice to help you become a better dental professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ripe Global Podcast. Good morning from Hanover, New Hampshire. This is Dr. Mike Melkers. And although I'm saying good morning, I should be saying good evening in Brisbane, Australia. I believe it's 10 p.m. for you guys. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Sahil Soni and Tony Rotundo to the program this morning. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I, I think really appreciate the invitation. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you both. I know that uh, to get all three of us together with a 14-hour time zone difference has been a little bit of a challenge, but I, I'm glad we're I'm glad we're all here together. I know so many of our listeners are going to know both of you, Tony, uh, from so much of your work on on Facebook, as well as congratulations, only the second winner of the Red Logo Award on Ripe Global. Thank you. And Sahil, for your incredible work on uh, DPR Dental Products Report, I guess we don't call it that anymore, but you and I got to know each other from there and how much you've helped and how much of a presence you have in Australia with so many dentists, Australia, New Zealand, and actually all over the Pacific Rim and even the world, I would say. Thank you. I'm, I'm not sure I would go that far, but uh, definitely on this side of the island. <laughs> I, I, would, I would go further. I have, I have previously described Sahil as uh, uh, the conscience, the conscience of Australian dentistry. <laughs> wow. Tell me about that, Tony. Oh, I just think that, um, you know, Sahil is an incredibly insightful uh, and, and in, in my view, wise human. And when, uh, you know, that's a really interesting chat group that uh, DPR, you know, full of, I suppose, Australian, New Zealand dentists and, and often different issues present themselves. And uh, I have, I don't know, I, I just think Sahil's judgment is incredibly good. He's uh, very capable of empathising with people when they need empathy and uh, calling people out when they probably need to be called out. And, and that's a, a skill that not too many people are, are really capable of. So, um, and yeah, I, I, I very much admire his judgment. I, I would have to Thanks, put myself, I would, I would, I would have to put myself in that, in that same boat. And then Sahil, you and I have known each other for, gosh, it's got to be pushing, not quite so 10 years, years, but it, but oh. it, but it, but it's pretty close because you, you qualified in 2009 from Otago. Yes. Yep. And I think you and I met probably in 11 or 12. Yeah, and, and while while you diminish or while you lightly dismiss the the compliments from Tony and I, uh, I, I don't think that you can discount all the compliments you get on DPR and how much people thank you on on a daily basis. It's you know it's funny. I don't know how to take compliments well, so I just feel embarrassed anytime someone says anything positive. I don't know what to say. It just it feels weird getting a compliment. It can, it can, and it, and, it, and it is strange. That's a, that's. I wouldn't say it's a universal feeling, but so many people, and so many of the people that I respect, uh, feel you know express that same thing. And as my grandma says, a simple thank you is sometimes enough to make the people that give you a compliments feel validated, and then you can run away and feel uncomfortable. <laughs> So, Tony, you started out at, you qualified at University of Queensland in 84, and then ended up at UCLA. Getting away how, how old I am, which is really worrying for me, but anyway. I, I think I was, I think I was in my third year in secondary school, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, uh, you went on 12 years later to the PROS program at UCLA in Los Angeles. Correct. Yeah. You did well to put that together. So I, I'd been a general dentist for quite a long time before I started the, the PROS program, um, which I think I think was a good thing. Like I, I can remember receiving some criticism from people within the PROS program sort of saying that, um, you know, uh, 
10 years of experience it isn't really good for you unless if it's 10 years or 10 times the same one year of bad experience but um i think it was like i think it was okay for me and and um i'm kind of glad i did it later i sort of did it when i was ready to do it and um it's you know it's pr probably why i kind of have that i don't know interest in composite resin which which may be a lot of uh uh prosthodontists of my era uh, kind of didn't have and that was probably because of that that sort of history in general practice first i guess what what was what was hot and happening when you graduated or, or while you were going through your process residency i think um all ceramic restorations were a really big thing mm -hmm. so i mean when i went through my pros program in the us uh, it was very much uh, porcelain fused to metal based and um, the experience, I mean, all ceramics had been around for a while. For example, uh, pressable ceramics like Emax, um, you know, evolved in like the late 80s and, and I started there in 93. And Are you going to say Dicor? Uh, well, then, then you had things like Dicor that preceded that again. So that, that was kind of like the... Um, early to mid 80s and um you know there, there was other stuff before that but but preceding pressable materials I, I guess all ceramics didn't have such a great reputation so so that was kind of a hot thing and and it was treated in those circles um you know with some reservation but it was um you know it was a it was a big thing mm -hmm. i guess implants you know were as particularly in the aesthetic zone, that was sort of a, uh, something that was evolving a lot at that time. You know, there was still a lot of unanswered questions, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Sahil, you listen, you know, while I've known you for a while, I was digging around on, on your previous websites as you and I were chatting about before we hopped on this morning. And you talk about your interests uh, in passions in dentistry being, or having been at the time cosmetic dentistry, and wisdom teeth removal. Is, is oh, that still the case? That is not am I, the case. Am I dating you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think when I made that website, it was seven or eight years ago. Uh, I have since moved on from wisdom teeth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I still do them, but it's, I don't take joy out of doing them. Is it, there, there's an old uh, quote one of my mentors said, if you quote me, date me. <laughs> that's a Dr. Peter Dawson. So he says, please, please, says, please put a date footnote on when I said that because it yeah. wasn't last week. Yeah. So, but going back those seven, eight years and, and 11 years ago that you qualified, Sahil, tell me about how your and Tony's relationship started, or actually how Tony, let's start about how, when Tony got on your radar. Um, Tony has his... He's been someone whose work I have looked at online and I have instantly been drawn to it. I have instantly used it for inspiration and I still do. It's, um, uh, you know, it's easy to see why if you have seen Tony's work online. Um, and what I really admire even more than his work is uh, his humble nature. Uh, you know, he's one of the best clinicians that I know personally. Um, and yet he remains so down to earth and so humble. And he treats everyone he meets. You know, it can be anyone. Um, doesn't matter what walk of life they're from. He treats them with the same respect. And that to me is inspiring. Um, I, you know, I, in a way, he's... He's like a father figure. I'm going to pull you up soon. <laughs> there, there are going to be a, a lot of checks floating around in the mail by the end of this podcast. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, it's, um, I look up to him not only clinically, but, you know, also in, in personal life. Um, uh, just, you know, gives me direction to where I want to see myself uh, kind of get to. Uh, it's, it's, wow. They, I don't know quite how to follow up on that, but it, the, the viewers uh, or the listeners don't have the, uh, have the opportunity that I do to see both of your faces while you were describing Tony like that. And I could see Tony uh, 
as you said, being a little uncomfortable, but first of all, it was, it was, it was pride, uh, not only in his impact, but I could also see that he was very proud of you. And, and honestly, when you, when you guys asked, and right before we hopped on, Tony, you said, what are we going to talk about? You know, and the reason that I chose you, and the, the two of you are the, are the first uh, pair that I've actually brought together on the, on the podcast to talk about, and people are going to ask why, or I think both of you wondered why. And if I, if I look at each of you, you're almost like different versions of the same person at different stages in your career. And the thing that really stands out to me with both of you is your professionalism, your collegiality, and how everything, Sahil, that you describe in Tony, I see developing and I have seen develop in you. So this, this circle of influence. In fact, I, I see the things that Sahil describes uh, much more in him than I see in, in, in myself. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to hear all the words, but the, the truth is, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess we're both equally bad at taking <laughs> compliments. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but, <laughs> but case in point, Tony. Anyway, I, I mean, and, and maybe, I mean, maybe there, you know, there is a kind of a, a some, some funda fundamental values that we, we both, share or, or even if we don't share them we certainly um uh, are attracted to those values and and and, and probably that's a, a big part of the basis of our friendship isn't isn't that funny that uh that the qualities that we strive to become once we become them are complemented for becoming for being them then we get we become uncomfortable it's a it's it's a very strange very this should be a therapy group I, I think I'll start I'll start yeah. the therapy clock here in a second. You can but call I, the podcast how, how to how to uh, how to respond to a compliment. <laughs> Lincoln and I have yeah, had that had that discussion quite a bit quite a bit in the past. But I'm gonna I'm gonna roll that into a, into a question though. How would people describe you? And I'm not saying Sahil, how would you describe Tony or Tony, how would you describe Sahil? Tony, how do, how do you think people would describe you if they're, if someone was telling others about you? Oh God, that's such a horrible question. It's a cruel question for someone like me or Sahil. <laughs> but I, I think... Can I, um, can I soften it up then for you? Yeah, go for it. How would you like to be described? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I'm sure that I get described as a good clinician because I, I hear those those comments all the time. So that would be part of what, what people would say. And I guess, you know, kind of from a, a values point of view, I was influenced a lot by my father. And, and uh, so uh, it, it would be fairly easy for me to say that the sorts of characteristics I saw in him were, were characteristics that I'd like to see in myself. So, um, you know, he was generous, humble. Uh, he um, uh, was interested in people. He was probably more interested in people than he was uh, in himself. Um, yeah, I mean, he was an honest, decent, uh, kind human being. So so I guess that those are the sorts of things that, I, that I'd love to hear people uh, uh, say about me at different times and, and you know sometimes I, I feel like I'm kind of living up to those ideals and and like everyone I know for sure that um, uh, I let the side down once in a while and I, and, and I never quite feel like I've, I've kind of got to where I want to go in that respect but anyway. Sahil? Maybe some, I don't know if that's an answer but that's what you got. I think that's a, I think that's a great answer Tony. Sahil how, the, the ball is over to you. Um, I, how would you like people to describe you? Um, I read something recently. It said, what you think of yourself um, is completely different to each person who has met you and has the version of you in their mind. Everyone has a different version of you in their mind. And none of them is the same as what you think. So I think, um, you know, I'm sure there are people who like me in the world. There are people who don't like me um and that's fine you know you, you're not you're not a tub of nutella you're not meant to please everyone well not everyone likes nutella yeah true i yes. mean i don't personally know anyone that doesn't like nutella but i'm sure there's some weirdo out there that you know finds it vile <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh, I don't know. I think for me, I've kind of, I just want to be happy with the way I think about myself. Um, that trumps what anyone else thinks of me, except, you know, there are certain people who I would like Tony, for example, who I would want to be in a good stead in their eyes. And there's just a few people like that. And to be honest, I wouldn't care what anyone else thinks about me as long as I'm happy with myself. Good answer. I like that. So with, with these intersecting descriptions and how, how you talk about each other and how you talk about your values, how did the two of you come to practice together? I guess it was, uh, you know, started with some exchanges online as, as, it, as friendships online often do. Um, and then we got to meet each other a few times and um, I can just remember, uh, you know, a few little situations where Sahil was very supportive of me, you know, online once or twice. And um, twice. and then we uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then we um, uh, kind of I suppose a, a a big point was was when we ended up in Italy together too. Um, I mean, we ended up lecturing once together, and uh, we had some a, a little bit of interpersonal contact. But but then I was we had been planning to sort of go on a photo trip together and. Um, somehow coincidentally we ended up in Italy at the same time and um and we got to spend a bit of time together there and um and then before we knew it Sahil was moving to uh Brisbane how do you see the our yeah, that's that's pretty much it I think uh we met online we spoke online and um, then we met in person and uh, we realized we share some similar passions you know photography dentistry um and yeah, it's just, we went on the trip to to Italy together and um, yeah, just just clicked, I guess. The Italy trip was a little bit of a coincidence. Like I happened to be in that area at the, or in that area at the time, Sahil was planning a trip. And um, I, I think that, it, that our plans were, slightly out of sync and, and, and we just found out about it and, and we kind of reorganized the dates a little bit. And um, anyway, we got to spend four or five days together, which was fantastic. Actually, it was really great. Well, outside of, you know, as, you, as you said, inside and outside of dentistry, outside of dentistry, one of the passions that you both share that I'm just in awe of is just spectacular photography. I think, I think, I think Tony, uh, I think Tony is the photographer. I am the the wannabe photographer, just like in dentistry. <laughs> I totally, totally disagree with that. Um, but the one thing I was going to say is my, my photographic trick, and um, it's every photographer's trick, is to to take a thousand photographs and show people too. <laughs> <laughs> so, some of the locations you have. What what has what's been the the island that you've been going to. Oh, where Lord Howe. Where, where is that? Yeah, that's some, um, if you, if you drew a line between Sydney and Brisbane mm -hmm. and found the exact middle of that and headed west for, I don't know how far, maybe two or three hundred kilometers. Uh, sorry, east. east. Uh, that, I was going to say. <laughs> it's in the middle of Pacific, east of Australia. Those the pictures from there are, are spectacular. I've been to it's it's gorgeous. Uh, it's such I've been to Australia place. sixteen times, I think, and I just I, I don't even feel like I've even be, begun to scratch the surface. And and that one's definitely definitely on my list. Sahil or Tony, where where are your favorite photo safaris that you've taken? Where where have you really enjoyed going? I think I can. would for me it's. Um... I think every place has been pretty spectacular. Um, I think the highlight would have to be Iceland. It's, uh, it's pretty much every photographer's dream and it's hard to take a bad photo there. But um, I Did would you say- hear that sigh from me when he said Iceland? Because I've never been there. I'm just so totally <laughs> jealous of- uh... and, 
to be honest, uh, I had never thought of going to Iceland until Tony <laughs> mentioned he wants to go to Iceland. So I was like, okay, let's look this up. And yeah, I ended up in Iceland. What, what year did you do that, Saho? Was that the same year you and I were in Boston together? Uh, I have no idea. Um, it was three years ago, I think. Okay. Because that was a, a Northern Hemisphere summer trip, correct? Or, or did you go in the Northern Hemisphere winter? Uh, it was Northern Hemisphere start of winter. It was October, uh, October, oh, November. Okay. Okay, that would have been a different trip because you and I were in Boston in June for the Perio Prost meeting, the quintessence yeah. meeting, I believe. So, yeah, cool. Uh, so, with getting back to getting back to to dentistry, uh, what does your typical day look like in your in your clinic? And and this time I'll start with Sahil. What is what does your typical day look like in the in Malo dentistry? Um, when I'm at Tony's, it's a like it can be anything it can be toothache it can be root canal it can be a crown um uh, the less busy i am the happier i am because i get to watch tony um because if i have patients i obviously can't do that and um you know i think tony does feel upset if i'm not busy because i don't know he feels like um i, I don't know but i'm happy in my way yeah, but I'm happier when I'm less busy because I get to see Tony in action. And it's funny, I learn more by just being a fly on the wall and observing him, how he does things. He doesn't even have to say anything. And I, you know, I can see a lot of things and pick up a lot of things. And I used to think I take a long time polishing temporaries because I want them to look nice. And then I see Tony polishing temporaries. And I don't feel bad anymore. I feel like I need to spend more time. I should spend so more I time. <laughs> well, now, since everybody's going to wonder, Tony, tell us about your polishing protocol for your provisionals. Um, okay, I'll give you a couple of little tips. So the first tip is, I, I don't know how you feel, Michael, but if, if you're polishing a provisional for a single tooth, let's say you make a provisional for a molar, that mm -hmm. goes really quickly, right? I don't know, two minutes, you've gone all the way around the margins, a little bit of trimming, you're mm -hmm. kind of done. But the second you have a couple of splintered teeth together, let's say a three unit bridge, all of a sudden that two minutes doesn't turn into six minutes, it turns into 16 minutes. You know, it's so much harder to polish uh, a number of splintered teeth. So the first tip is um, take a double sided disc and at the gingival margin, create some separation between those three teeth. And then you can easily contour in between uh, those teeth. Then it'll take you the six minutes that it should take instead of the you know 16 or 26. So, so that's one little tip, a double-sided disc to create some separation in between the teeth. Then I guess uh, how easy the provisionals are to make is all about the quality of the kind of wax up that you've got. I mean, if it's a, if it's a high quality wax up, you shouldn't have to spend too much time provisionalizing things except to create maybe a little bit of separation between the teeth. And if, if it's less high quality, then you're going to spend a lot more work shaping. And that's difficult to describe in a podcast. But, um, and then I suppose the other, the other tip might be, um, I never actually polish the provisionals, but typically I might sandblast them once I'm done. And then I, I'd use one of those um, uh, kind of unfilled resins to, uh, uh, glaze, I guess, the mm -hmm. surface of the provisionals. And that, that's really quick and, and goes really um, uh, easily. So, so is, your, is your day-to-day -day material of choice a bisacryl or an acrylic? A uh, bisacryl. Okay. So um, something like Luxatamp or Protamp. Or, mm -hmm. um, that, that, they seem to work pretty well for me. I, I know that uh, prosthodontists as, as a group often use acrylics, mm -hmm. um, but I, I find them quite difficult to trim. They, they are easy to polish, but difficult to kind of trim. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm kind, of, I'm kind of happy with the bisacryls and, and they seem to, they seem to last. The only time you might have a problem with, is with quite a long bridge, but I, you know, I'm starting, I'm seeing less and less of those these days. So um, yeah, I think they're fine. 
I think, you know, there loads of practitioners have great results with both. My, my uh, practice partner uses acrylic almost exclusively, except for when he perhaps yeah. uses composite uh, for veneer cases. And I almost exclusively use bisacryl. And, and like you mentioned, the unfilled resins, the, the Opti, Opti glaze from GC has just been a game changer as far as yeah. the accenting goes. But, I, you know, I sit here and saw, Hill, you say, you know, some of Tony's cases. And I think his case has been the cover photo on DPR as long as I've known you. Yeah. And I'm sitting here and whenever I feel overly adequate, I just stare at the contours and the color blending. <laughs> and then I, I get inspired to uh, try to improve myself a little bit. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. It's a, it's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because on one hand, it inspires you to do better. Mm -hmm. But every now and then he'll post a case that will make you feel so inadequate. And you will think, like, I think what, like, the difference between me and him is just too far. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it can be a double-edged sword. Well, that's, you know, that's, you, you know, you, 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 you both might need to be reminded of the year that I graduated with, which was <laughs> 1984. I, I have had a bit of time to acquire and refine my skill set. So um, anyway, I, I suspect you're both on the right track. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's an interesting, interesting quest, uh, question. And that's an interesting point. And we were, we were just discussing this uh, with some colleagues the other day is how we can either be inspired or almost deflated in an hmm. educational environment. Is there some things you look at and it, it makes you want to reach for the stars. And other times you see something that's so spectacular, you want to go hide under a rock, hand in your handpiece, uh, you know, and, and put in an application at Mackers. So, so I would ask, since both of you are educators, and uh, Sahil, you and I had a little bit of a chat, how do you support your attendees and your students to be inspired and not feel that way? Is it possible? Um, I'd like to always show my failures. Um, I think it's a big part of the learning curve. And so at my courses, I will often put in uh, several of my failures just so people can see that, you know, it's a learning curve and um, everyone has to go wrong and everyone has to make mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not growing. Like, you, to be able to grow, you need to make mistakes. So um, that's something I recommend. And I think I'm, I'm, all the mistakes are still very fresh in my mind. Like it hasn't been 20 years that I've forgotten, uh, you know, forgotten about them. So, um, you know, I, I always try to encourage mistakes. I think it's a good way to learn. Um, like not encourage, <laughs> encourage. I wasn't going to say. <laughs> but... Uh, um, and and the, the, you know and the other thing is, um, it's you know it's a natural process um, of learning. I think um, you know the more I develop myself, um, the more I look back and uh, and I realize that at some point in you know in my career I thought a certain way, and two years later I have completely changed the way I I think. And mm -hmm. I think if you're not, not continuously changing the way you think, you're really not developing. Um, if you think that you think a certain way and you're very stringent in the way of thinking, don't give a chance to develop yourself. Um, you know, there's often conversations on DPR where I've, I've argued with, you know, some people like specialists, for example, um, and now when I look back, my thinking is completely different. I think if you're not doing that, that's, um, you know, you're not growing as a person. And it's important to grow as a clinician, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, that's so totally true. Like, um, uh, I think at different periods in my, um, in my career, uh, the, the sorts of things that I've done have, have, have really changed. I mean, typically it's because I've listened to someone that said some key things that I just didn't tune into before. Uh, but on the, on the point of mistakes, I just wanted to say that this morning I um, 
manage to slip a burr into the floor of someone's mouth and um, uh, and you know created this uh, kind of three centimeter hole. <laughs> that I had to uh, stitch up. So um, anyway, bad things happen to everyone. That's the message. Uh, uh, anyway, thankfully it was uh, one of my thought more thoughtful patients, uh, although they may, may feel less kind to me tomorrow. I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, some mistakes happen. That's my point. That is. And, and I probably yeah. don't show enough of my mistakes. I mean, that's kind of a, a fault of mine, I think. I, I can actually send you some of mine. It's, it's a service I provide for higher end speakers when, when, they, when, they, when they actually don't have that kind of skill set available to them. It's very reasonable fees. It's like a Shutterstock. It's an annual subscription. <laughs> New content being added all the time. <laughs> so both of you brought up the, the word that I wanted to talk about next, which is change. And I will read a quote from a wise younger dentist who used to practice in Canberra. And he said, uh, dentistry has changed significantly over the years, not just in the materials used, uh, but also teaching techniques uh, or treatment techniques and treatment philosophy. Sahil, that of course is the quote by you <laughs> off, of, off of one of your older websites. Be careful when you have a friend in Google. So how has dentistry changed for you, Sahil. You, you made mention of some older arguments or discussions on DPR, but over the course of your uh, 11 years, I guess so far, how have your treatment philosophy changed? Um, I think I have, you know, when you first graduate, you, you think you know everything, and then you practice for like maybe two years, and your confidence just plummets down. Uh, like that's how it started for me. After two years, I felt I knew nothing. And, um, you know, I went on a journey to try and gain more knowledge. Uh, you know, you go through this continuing education phase uh, where you absorb a lot of information, but you don't quite know how it, you know, is put together. You have some, you have bits and pieces here and there, but it doesn't connect, but eventually it does. So you have the knowledge, but you lack the experience. And once you work more, you see more things that work, things that don't work. Uh, eventually it, you know, I'm at a point where I think I have some clue of what is happening and I can predict, you know, five years ahead of what will happen. Um, I, I don't think I can predict any further than that because I don't have an ex enough experience, but it kind of, my philosophy has become more from pleasing the patient to uh, pleasing myself and the patient, uh, which involves saying no to a lot of the procedures that they would want me to do, but I would have to say no because I know either it's not going to work or uh, you know, in a few years time, they're not going to be happy with the result. Or, you know, so that's how my philosophy has kind of evolved a little bit. Could you share a specific on that where you, where you say you turn down treatment requests because you know there won't be a good outcome? Can you give us an example? Uh, I, I can give you a few. The easiest one <laughs> would be I had a patient not long ago. He came in and he said, I have 27 teeth and I would like 27 veneers. Hey. I, said, I said, okay. And um, you know, I showed him, I have a book of my work. So I showed him the book. I said, you know, these are the kind of things that we can look at doing. Uh, does this interest you? And he took out his phone and he went on Instagram and he showed me a, a picture of the whitest white bleach, you know, high value zirconia kind of restoration, mm -hmm. uh, you know, veneers. And he said something like this, but you know, interproximally there's a bit of shadow. He's like, I don't like that shadow. I want oh, I remember to have... this conversation. Yeah. So he's like, I want no shadow. I want just one, you know, white. And I had to say, look, I think I cannot deliver this result for you. Firstly, I don't think you need 27 restorations. You might need eight, um, but he was quite adamant. So, 
you know, that's where you just say, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help you. Um, yeah, that, that would be an example where you just have to say no. Tony, how about you is, uh, you know, since you're so much older than Sahil and I, <laughs> what, what have you seen over the course of your career be a philosophical change in treatment or has there been one? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel <clears throat> there have been too many philosophical changes. I mean, maybe some treatment concept changes, like the biggest one that I can think of at the moment is, um, a little bit of a shift from, uh, you know, site development in implant dentistry, moving from bony development to soft tissue development. I, I, you know, that that might be kind of a, a shift and that the pendulum always swings. It goes from one to the other and then back towards the other again. But I'd say that since doing prosthodontics, the style of dentistry and, and, and most of the philosophy uh, has changed, so let's say since 1996 for me, because I mean, for me at, at that time, I guess I learned how to manage cases more comprehensively. I was probably all, always using a range of different materials and, um, uh, and okay, so what else? I suppose the other thing that's changing a lot at the moment, I mean, you can't not mention digital dentistry, I suppose. So, um, I mean, that whole digital smile design stuff, I remember when I saw uh, Christian uh, for the first time, probably seven or eight years ago, like that was a kind of a, a mind-blowing experience for me. I mean, he was doing all the same things that I was taught to do as a, you know, prosthodontist, you know, to, to evaluate someone's smile before I kind of, and, you know, to develop a vision for the case. But it, it just made made that so much uh, easier for me me to do so or, or visualize so that that was a big thing and and then of course that's turned into um, you know 3d sort of digital applications and designs which I'm not too heavily involved in but but uh, I guess that's that's the big philosophical well, it's not even a philosophical it's it's a kind of a technical uh, change of our era that being Christian Coachman from Brazil and Digital yeah. Smile Design, correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah. just clarifying for, for our listeners. So, Hill, how about, how about you? So, we, we talked about, both of us, you and Tony and I talked about philosophy, talked about uh, materials a little bit. Over the course of, of your career so far, what material choices or material changes have you seen or, or techniques uh, that you've adopted or changed? Uh, one thing that I used to do was indirect composites, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, the 3M Lava Ultimate, uh, which is, you know, it's, it used to be promoted as a hybrid. However, it's just a rebranded indirect composite, mm -hmm. um, which had worldwide a lot of failures. Um, at, at the time when I was using it, uh, there were a few studies that you know, obviously promoted it and they looked favorable. So I was one of the early adopters uh, because of that. And I, you, know, you have to kind of buy into the philosophy. You have to drink the Kool-Aid and just believe in it, um, which I did fully. And you know, one to two years later, I started to have failures. And when you start to have those failures, I, funnily enough, a lot of people had D-bonds. I had zero D-bonds. Yeah, I had a lot of fractures. I had a lot of fractures, and um, it just made me realize: one, you know, don't believe everything a specialist or one person who is promoting a product is saying. You know, and don't be an early adopter <laughs> um, because you know what if things go wrong. And the third thing is, you know, what works in somebody's hands may not necessarily work in your hands. And I think there's a good study on OptiBond FL where they gave the bond to like 20 different practitioners and everyone had a different bond strength. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, just following the same protocol, you, you get different bond strengths. It's amazing with that. I used to uh, go to Ultradent in Utah and they would have a speaker symposium and colloquium and there would be maybe 20 or 30 of us and they would have us do bond tests with the same materials 
then with different materials and just watch the absolute array of, of differences and similarities between practitioners that, that pay attention to protocols. Oh gosh, you know, indirect composites, that is, it's like pick, pick the scab off and pour some lemon juice and salt. That has to be one of the things that perplexes me. So I'm, I'm 26 years in practice. And I think my first year and a half to second year out, I did 386 units of art glass. And Tony, you probably remember the wonderful days of art yeah. glass. And it's all the things that you talked about, Sahil. It's, it's just, either they debonded or they broke. And it seems like there's a cyclic return. It's exactly what I was about to say. And, and preceding art glass and bell glass, there was a material called isocytic. And, oh. uh, and so, 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 so it seems to me like the companies, like you said, they, they just sort of, reinvent the wheel with that stuff they um you know and, and maybe they genuinely believe that they're gonna or one of them genuinely believes that they've got a, a special product and the others all jump on the bad wagon because they feel like they have to compete with it and um but that that is a particular product that 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 story has repeated itself you know every decade for the last 30 years yeah but yeah, it begs the question maybe this is devil's advocate a little bit is reinventing the wheel a good thing or a bad thing are we missing something? Because if you look, and we were, we started the, the the podcast with a little bit of reference to this, is Emacs. Emacs isn't new. Before it was Emacs, it was Eris, and before Eris, it was Empress Two, and that that for me was nineteen ninety eight, I believe. And I remember doing some Empress Two, and it was only on the market in the U.S. for I think nine months. I could be wrong about that. And then it was pulled, and then Eris came on, and Eris was pulled in under a year. And then it was several years before Emacs came back. So that reinvention of the wheel and the challenges with uh, Emacs didn't really have to do, with, I don't think, with the substrate material. It had to do that we didn't understand how to bond porcelain to uh, and, yeah, and that like was the same lesson that we had with zirconia zirconia was was fraught with with failures before we knew how to bond you know that we actually needed different porcelains do you think that's possible with indirect com composites or is it just a bad idea um all products evolve uh, and uh, typically you know if if the history that you've just described is correct i mean they, they sort of evolve slowly and of course preceding Emacs was Empress, you know, which was the first pressable material which uh, ha had actually very good success, which was I think first produced in about 1989. So, so there's been a whole evolution of, um, you know, materials there that's worked really well. Um, we can't say the same thing for um, uh, the uh, composites, I guess, or the indirect composites. Um, I think the big thing for me is that if I'm going to change material, there needs to be a significant ad advantage. Uh, like if I can pick between something that um, uh, is working really well, that has a long history, that is doing, you know, 95% of the job that I want to do, and another material comes along, uh, which only gives me a 2% advantage, I'm going to wait. You know, I'm not going to jump in. Uh, but some materials come along that are worth a risk uh, because the, the change is so great. So, for example, uh, when pressable ceramics first arrived and they presented as an alternative to porcelain fused to metal restorations, uh, you know, porcelain fused to metal can look pretty good, but they did present a fairly significant advantage. So in um, specific instances like the aesthetic zone, uh, maybe that was worth the risk, you know, because it was a, a it was a big shift in in what they were able to to do. So, so anyway, the point I want to make is is if the shift isn't great, why take the risk? The shift needs to be uh, really significant before you jump into a a new product. So, uh, the viewer or the listeners can't see, but you're shaking your head in agreement a lot. Would you like to care to weigh in on on what Tony had to say? Yeah, no, I I completely agree, and um, I have kind of. In my practice, my daily practice, I would say uh, I, I offer generally just two options to my patients. It's either Emacs or it's gold. 
and um, you know a little bit of zirconia when needed I'm not a huge fan but I feel like you know if I can get the job done uh, with gold or emacs predictably why would I want to change when I have had failures trying other materials and the failures with emacs and gold are much much less it's uh, a matter of predictability so um, it's yeah, just pretty much just where I am. So, well, that, that brings me uh, to one more question when we're talking about, you know, looking back and learning forward and, and the, the sins and lessons of our past. Sahil, if you could go back and tell your former self something, what lesson would you share? And what would you tell that person? And how, you know, how many years out of school were you that you want to talk to yourself? I would say, don't, don't make decisions quickly. <laughs> and don't make up your mind quickly. Um, be critical and be doubtful of everything that you uh, get told. Um, yeah. I think it's important to have a critical mind and to question everything, no matter how sound the science, I think you have to question it and you know you might ultimately come to the same conclusion but uh, yeah don't be in a rush to jump in and believe something that sounds good uh, absolutely absolutely wise words yeah it's it's like you know i uh, the philosophy of minimal intervention i love the thought of minimal intervention and um you know initially when i was uh, you know recent grad uh, I would be overly conservative. And often you end up actually having more failures because of being a little bit too conservative when if you had just prepped a little bit more where you are still conservative, uh, your restoration would last a lot longer and you wouldn't have to take two bites to a cherry, you know? Um, that's what I would tell myself. Uh, I think that's I think that's a good point. It's it's you know what's missing in in the word that you described of minimally invasive is the why. Why are we minimally invasive? Because we want something to last and, and be more conservative conservative structure. Yeah. So it, I I almost wish it had been called appropriately conservative. Yeah. I think or, I... or minimally conservative in order to achieve a longer result. Yeah. I I, I the reason I'm babbling and I'm, I'm stumbling and stuttering is I remember going through that exact same learning curve that you shared and the failures that exist because we tried to take away less, we ended up actually taking away more. The whole, the whole purpose veneer thing. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that there are too many real applications for purpose veneers. I mean, even though they, um, they sound great and it's good to, preserve to structure. I think we're, I think all three of us share that philosophy, but um, by the same token, you need to leave enough space for the re restoration to have a chance. Yeah. yeah. So I think, Tony, looking, looking back to your former self, what lesson would you share with? Uh, that's such a tricky question because, um, you know, obviously if I could have acquired the knowledge that I have now much more rapidly, uh, that would have been a benefit to me. <laughs> so it would have been great if I could have had the knowledge of a 58-year-old 50, uh, at 27, but, um, but it can't happen, right? You know, we all have to make some mistakes and uh, um, acquire knowledge along, uh, along the way. So, you know, I, I wish I hadn't done, I wish I hadn't been an early adopter of uh, zirconia um, materials that, you know, would have saved me a lot of time and money and uh, embarrassment with a few things that kind of fell apart in a few, fa few patients. But, but anyway, you, you, everyone has to learn their own lessons. And, um, and there is a lot of value in acquiring knowledge slowly. You know, you, you, you can't rush stuff. You do have to get some experience and then acquire some knowledge and then acquire some knowledge and get some experience. You know, they, those two things are sort of bouncing off each other all the time. So, um, yeah, I, I would have liked to have known more quicker, but I, I, don't, I just don't know how quick you can go. 
you know, the, the other lesson is uh, you, you can't kind of rush either. Yeah. I think Simon and Garfunkel, I think it was them, said, slow down, you move too fast, got to make the moment last. So I guess it's all about feeling groovy and <laughs> making our patients feel groovy as well. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for staying up late. I know it's pushing 11 o'clock p.m. or 2300 your time, and I am just actually starting my day on a bank holiday. Thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything that you'd like to say before we sign off? Yeah, just on that last little uh, bit about making mistakes and learning from them. Um, I, I, you know, I tutor a lot of new grads and recent grads, and um, I've noticed something that, you know, everyone has a different personality and some people, uh, you tell them something and they will take that on board and they will, you know, avoid making mistakes. But some people learn by making their own mistakes like you can tell them yeah. you know don't do this but they will not learn the mistake learn from the mistake until they actually make the mistake and i i think i used to be like that or my, i might still be like that um so when i see a person like that you know i tell the person you know maybe this is not the best way to do it uh, and i can see they won't listen they will do it their way i think a lot of people have to make the mistake to learn from it. Um, so even if I could tell myself, hey, Sahil, don't do this, I don't think the, the younger Sahil would listen to me. <laughs> he, would, he would still make the same mistake. Oh, that is, that, I think that's the time paradox that they, they describe in most of the science fiction movies. Yeah. We, uh, we can't change the past and people change, but not much. Thank you both for joining us today. And thank you for all of our listeners for joining us here at the Ripe Global Podcast. So Mike Melkers with Sahil Sony and Tony Rotundo signing off and have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us for this incredible episode of the Ripe Global Podcast. We'll meet you back here next time for some more insights from Ripe Global. And in the meantime, Ripe Global is teaming up with master dentists from all over the world to offer you a fast-growing library of world-class online lectures and masterclasses. Visit our website at www.ripeglobal.com and become a member today.